Thank you. Love you guys. Appreciate that. How tall are you, man? I need a step stool. <laughs> no, no, I'm just playing. I'm good. I'm just going to pretend I'm tall. I'm gonna... Hey, oh my goodness. Uh, Pastor Tim, thank you for having me. And it's, it's a pleasure to be with your people. I've been excited to get to meet you guys. I've got uh, two core values that I live my life by. One is if I can't laugh, I'm not going. And so we can expect to have a good time this morning. And two, if we're not changing the world, then I'm not playing. And so uh, the reason that I'm here today is I think we're going to laugh and have a good time. And two, I think I'm getting the opportunity to speak to a whole room full of world changers. And so, man, it's going to be a good, good day today. So... Um, Let's see where to start here. We are on the Around the World in 40 Days tour. Uh, in the summer, I began to see an image of a hot air balloon when I was just chatting with the Lord, and it was really familiar to me, and I couldn't place it for a few days or a couple of weeks, and then I remembered, oh, that was speaking of children's books. It was on the cover of a book I had when I was a kid, the Around the World in 40 Days by Jules Verne. And I was like, well, Lord... In 80 days. And I was like, Lord, am I supposed to do like an around the world tour? And I was like, man, I definitely don't have an 80 day window. I could maybe do it in 40 days. That seems crazy. And so then I asked Dano and he was like, oh yeah, you should totally do it. I was like, okay. (laughs) And so uh, we went from the UN down to Brazil, to England, here to South Africa. We'll go to Australia, uh, Southeast Asia, and then back in through San Francisco. So all the way around the world. We have over 20 people that are traveling uh, with us uh, from School of Kingdom. They're doing the Kingdom Ambassador Certification and just honing their skills on how to uh, love a nation, research its original intent, go after prophetic uh, strategies and solutions for the nation, uh, craft all of that together to present to local kingdom authorities um, humbly to say, hey, we love your nation and uh, we've gone after God's heart for your nation and we would just like to lend uh, what it is that we've heard in hopes that it might be helpful uh, for you. And so it's been a great time. These guys have been troopers and uh, it's been a a crazy pace, but we're having a good time and it's good to be here. Uh, My wife and daughter are doing prophetic training with the kids right now, uh, but you'll see them tonight and... uh, uh, it's been uh, an amazing time getting to see my, my daughter's worldview develop. I know the first time that I went to a nation, I, I go to Uganda, this is nine years ago or so, and I became distinctly aware that I had an American view of the world. I didn't have a worldview at all. <laughs> There's a big difference between an American view of the world and having a worldview And I realized, oh my goodness, there's so much more uh, that I was ignorant to. And so it's awesome to get to see my daughter uh, develop that at a at a young age. And so that's that's been great. I do uh, covert government consulting, prophetic government consulting. And so I'm credentialed with the UN, and I meet with government leaders around the world. And uh, when they bring the issues of the nation, what they don't know is all I'm doing is taking the issue and saying, Holy Spirit, what's the solution? (laughs) Because I don't know. (laughs) And then the thing that I've developed is the ability to hear the word of wisdom, the apprehension of a supernatural strategy that can take what is and transform it into what should be. 
and then verbally engineer it using covert language, pulling the Christianese out, right? And uh, presenting it in the style of the individual that's in front of me. Uh, We call it the strategies of heaven delivered in the styles of the kings for the sake of the people. And so I've been doing that for a while and uh, met Dano because of that. He's always curious about different things that are happening in the prophetic. And uh, since that time, he's just been a champion of who I am and what I do. And I'm super grateful for that. And uh, to be honest with you, the government consulting thing and meeting with presidents and heads of state is as surprising to me as it is to you guys. (laughs) Because prior to that, I was in the uh, music scene. Uh, I was a a rapper back in the day in the Christian rap circuit. And uh, I usually don't bring that up, but Angus told me I already outed you, man. So... uh, They're expecting a little something, so let's get that out of the way. I'm going to dust it off. Are you ready? Everybody's looking for 16 bars of fanatical phrases, factual, dataful lines, ripped from radical pages, practical said I was gone, hacked and waxed like a diesel, but a backjacked and strapped. No more gradual tactical moves, bro. You won't know though what hit you. My ninja lines, they bend your mind like a neurovirus bitcher. Got you jerking, jiggy working overtime, arise for certain, falling short to leave you hurting. Someone called to close the curtain. Let me spit a line from the divine mind that resides inside of mine. Prime to shine ahead of my timeline. I'm like a fine wine. I'm better with age. I call it vineyard grind. Did I rob that from Tech 9? Did I go strike for E40? Nah, I spit fine lines out of mine alone and those alone, homie. See, my heart makes the beat, but my father makes me flow. I'm living life by my design when I light it up and let it go. So grab your paper, grab your pen, raft those 16 bars again. I could have spit a mean 15, left the scene right then with a clean-cut win. (laughs) Oh, I already had a water. Double portion. Oh my goodness. You should take note of what it is that you're drawn to in the natural because it's pointing to what you're made for in the supernatural. So as a rapper back in the day, I prided myself on being a lyricist. I didn't like easy rap. I didn't, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the new mumble rap scene, right? I loved lyricists and, and wordsmiths like Nas, the original. Um, And so I would spend hours crafting and fine-tuning lines and seeing how many rhymes I could fit in lines and different rhyme patterns and and all of this. But what that was really pointing me to was that I was made to be a wordsmith for the kingdom. And so the same skill set that I developed in the natural, in the music scene, is what has allowed me to verbally engineer prophetic strategies and language into what the person in front of me can receive in the moment. So whatever you're drawn to in the natural, take one step back in the spirit and say, what is that pointing to? And the other thing I love to do is to discern the original intent and identity of individuals and help articulate that so that they can walk in the fullness of who they are. As Graham Cook says, when you begin to do with intention what you have done through intuition, it is then that you achieve acceleration. And so as Jesus was the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, 1 John 4, 17, as he, Jesus, is, so are you here in this world. Ah, so you are living words. So when I work prophetically with an individual or prophetically with a nation, it's all word smithery. It's all the same thing. God doesn't waste anything. 
And so whatever you've been drawn to and, and done in your past, see how the Lord is looking to expand it and use it on a new level. <laughs> all right. So all that was for free. Um, <laughs> hashtag long intros. Um, so after I had walked with Dano for a while, uh, we were at lunch one day and he said, hey, I love it that you sit with the kings of the earth, but would you rather sit with a king of the earth once a week, or would you rather raise up thousands who sit with kings daily? And I'm about impact. I was like, well, I'd rather raise up thousands who sit with kings daily. And he was like, well, you should start a school. And then he went back to his sandwich. And so, <laughs> and so I started School of Kingdom, and the first year I had 12 students, because I'm very Jesus-like. And one betrayed me, but I'm fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> that was five years ago, and uh, currently we have over 350 students in School of Kingdom. Uh, we have School of Kingdom South Africa and School of Kingdom Australia. Same content, but facilitated live in accordance with your time zone, and we're looking to launch uh, a couple more here uh, shortly. So, good times, good times. I love the kingdom. Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. So we'll go to a slide two here. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And I really felt like I was supposed to speak on the righteousness component today rather than the kingdom, which is usually my go-to. Um, but uh, I, f I feel like I have a message that will really resonate with this house uh, for today. So that's the direction we're going to go in. But we should never separate kingdom and righteousness. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all things will be added to you. Seek first, see first the kingdom before you see everything else. So uh, an illustration that I stole from my good friend Ryan Pena is that the kingdom and righteousness must become lenses of the glasses that you look through, through which you discern everything else. Your theology surrounding the kingdom and his righteousness cannot be books on your theological bookshelf alongside your theology surrounding eschatology or theology surrounding Christology or, or whatever all the others are. No, you must read every other piece of your theology through the lenses of the kingdom and his righteousness in order to discern the other topics correctly. <laughs> So, note that it says, his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. You see, I caught the revelation of the kingdom, but because I didn't have the revelation of righteousness, the enemy would constantly disqualify me from participating in the kingdom. Because I didn't understand that I was qualified because of his righteousness, not because of my own. So I was trying to be righteous rather than realizing that I was Already, past tense, made righteous. That's why Jesus didn't say, seek first the kingdom and being righteous. Whew, that's, that exhausted me just saying that right there. <laughs> we sing that song about how holy God is. Sometimes we can have a perception of holiness like God is holy because he doesn't sin. But that would be a very shallow interpretation. God is holy and a better definition would be incapable of acting outside of his true nature. God is holy because he is incapable of acting outside of his true nature. So religion will read you the verse, be holy because I am holy. 
And it sounds like a command of something I must do, but the, in actuality, it's just an invitation. Hey, be holy because I'm holy. I'm incapable of acting outside of or against in accordance with my nature. And how many of you know that you are all new creations? You have a new nature. You have the ability to just act in accordance with your nature. It's an invitation to access, to apprehend, and to implement that which you are. It's not talking about your behavior at all. It's actually talking and pointing to your identity. He, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that you might become his righteousness, the righteousness of God, where? In Christ Jesus. When you were born again, you were born into Christ. You are in Christ. Where do you become righteous? In Christ. Are you in Christ? Oh, then you have already become righteous. You just have to agree with God. But Dub, I don't, I don't feel righteous. Doesn't matter. <laughs> but Dub, I'm not producing evidence of that righteousness. Well, that's only because you haven't agreed with what God said about you yet. You have to agree with him before you will align with him. You see, the kingdom is where you belong. His righteousness is why you belong. And you have become the righteousness of God. So some states of, of righteousness that we see, it begins with the man and the woman prior to the fall. They had right standing with God. Fallen humanity stood in opposition to God. Not face to face in opposition, as we might think. No, no, in the opposite direction of God. Man turned his face away from the Father. Father didn't turn his face away from man. <laughs> How many of you ever heard the phrase, God is so holy he cannot look upon sin? Anybody ever hear that? Well, there's a couple of problems with that. <laughs> One is that if you believe that God is so holy he cannot look upon sin, that actually denies the deity of Jesus. Because Jesus just walked around with sinners all day, every day. And I don't think it was like this. <laughs> uh, secondarily, that would say that there is something that dictates God's actions. That would make sin more powerful than God, actually. If God could not do something due to something. But how many of you know God is way more powerful than sin? He actually thinks he took care of your sin problem already. <laughs> and he invites you to agree with him. Now, new creations have right standing in God. The upgrade. Let's go to slide three. So, the man and the woman, before the fall, had right standing with God. Next slide. Fallen humanity stood in opposition to God. In other words, standing opposite, looking the opposite direction from God. The next slide. <laughs> Fallen humanity stood in opposition to God. So in the garden, you had man and God in relationship face to face. In the fall, man moves. God does not move. Man now stands in opposition to God, but God didn't change. Oh, next slide. Sorry. There we go. So in the garden, they are in relationship face to face. Those are chairs, by the way. <laughs> In the fall, father didn't fall, man fell. Father didn't move, man moved. Father didn't turn his face away, man hid his face. Okay? Then at the cross, God moves. 
back in front of man. But see how God didn't change his position. (laughs) He just moved back face to face with man. Oh, you're going to look away from me? I'm going to stand in front of you now. Like a GPS, right? Recalculating, recalculating. (laughs) But God didn't move. Romans 5.10 says this. For when we were enemies, and that word there is ekthras, ekthras, enemies in our minds, standing opposed to God. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Hold on. Who was reconciled to who? We were reconciled to God. God was not reconciled to us. God never saw us as his enemy. In our fallen minds, we saw God as our enemy. In the fall, man's perception of God went from good, kind, loving Heavenly Father to angry, punisher God. But Father's view of us never changed. We were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind, (laughs) mind containing a fallen flesh, sarks, Okay, (laughs) Sarx's the flesh denotes mere human nature, an earthly nature of man apart from divine influence, therefore prone to sin and opposed to God, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. When we were enemies in our minds, that's when Jesus came. But you were never an enemy of God. In truth, that was a lie that man believed. Have you ever noticed that in the moment Judas came to betray Jesus, Jesus calls him what? Friend. Friend, do what you have come to do. Listen, if there was ever a human that could have been seen as an enemy to God, it should have been Judas. But in that moment, Jesus says, friend, do it what you have come to do. Because there has never been a human that God has seen as his enemy. Fallen man thought in his mind that they were enemies with God. So Jesus comes to correct the record. (laughs) The issue, when man employed sin, man forsook the inheritance of the father, which was the tree of life. And he ate from another tree. Sin is really all about inheritance. Let's go to the next slide, slide six. The Greek word for sin is hamartia. And the primary definition of hamartia is to be without share in. In reference to not having a share in an inheritance. In other words, you don't know your father and you don't know what he has for you. You have an orphan mindset and an orphan heart, so you end up doing orphan things. In fact, you have to get all the way down to definition five to do the wrong thing. But how many of you have been taught, how many of you have had it hammered into your head, when you hear the word sin, you immediately think doing the wrong thing? That was my primary definition of sin for forever. The minute I would hear sin, doing the wrong thing. Oh, I was still eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. No, the sin issue isn't people doing bad things. It's orphans not knowing they have a share in the inheritance. Religion makes it about actions. The kingdom has always been about identity. 
That's why the purest presentation of the actual gospel is the prodigal son. A son who had an inheritance, wasted it, and you, oh man, you can see he begins to think his father is his enemy. Maybe if I go back, I'll luck out and I can be a slave or, and maybe if I'm a really good slave, maybe I can be a servant. (laughs) But when he comes back face to face with the father, what does he discover? I've been waiting for you. You've never been an enemy to me in my mind, son. Welcome back to the inheritance. Sin is about inheritance, not actions. Religion has lied to us all for a long, long time. Listen, think about this. When, when Jesus would heal somebody, <laughs> oh my goodness. I went and ministered to a group of people a couple of weeks ago that a lot of the church has big problems with, and I just talked about how all I did was speak identity. And all these religiates, came on the thread to tell me, but after you told them about their identity, did you tell them to to go and not do bad things anymore? And I'm like, you missed the whole point. Because, you know, I used to read that and I would cringe a little bit because Jesus would heal somebody and then he would say, now go and sin no more. And deep down inside, I was like, that would be the worst thing to hear in that moment. Because the next time I screwed up, I would feel so much shame, guilt, and condemnation because I would have let down the one who just blessed me. Because I had the fifth definition of sin in my mind. That's not what he's saying. Sin, to be without share in, to not know you have an inheritance. He's saying, now that you have tasted of the inheritance, now go and never again know what it is like to not have a share in the goodness of God. He's addressing her mindset and saying, now go and never be without share in the inheritance. He's not telling her to not do bad things anymore. See, you, you, you should take a picture of that slide. And as you read the Bible, every time you see Hamartia sin, you should say, okay, which of these definitions? Now, sometimes, not very often, is it the fifth definition that it's talking about? The majority of the time is talking about not being with Sharon. Listen, he who had never done naughty things became doing a lot of naughty things on the cross so that you might stop doing naughty things. No, no, no. He who had never known what it was like to be without an inheritance gave up an inheritance upon the cross so that you could apprehend an inheritance. Changes everything. The gospel is about orphans coming home to apprehend their inheritance. It has nothing to do with actions. Orphan mindsets and orphan hearts do orphan stuff. But if you try to regulate the orphan actions and you never address the orphan heart and the orphan mindset, whew, that's an exhausting game to play. <laughs> so, just to clarify a little bit, I pulled this from another teaching, so it has a little more on here, but uh, uh, what was the original inheritance of man? If man had never fallen, how long would he have lived? Where? On the earth. So the, the inheritance of the original man and woman prior to the fall was unconditional love, eternal life, and dominion over the earth. Now, what part of that inheritance was lost in the fall? 
not the unconditional love. (laughs) Because God is holy, he is incapable of not loving his creation. That's a part of his nature. What man lost in the fall was eternal life and dominion over territory. So when Jesus comes as fully God and fully man, the inheritance he gives up on the cross is eternal life in the physical and his dominion over the earth. He exchanges that so that you might apprehend it. That was for free. Next slide. (laughs) Fallen humanity stands in opposition to God. Jesus comes to restore the original intent and give it an upgrade. Slide eight. New creations do not have right standing with God. They have right standing in God. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus doesn't have right standing with the Father. Jesus has right standing in the Father. Because the Trinity is inseparably one. Three persons, one being, other-focused, self-giving love. He has given you his righteousness. You don't have right standing with God, and you don't need it. Because you have right standing in God. And there's nothing you can do about it. You are in him, he is in you, you are inseparably one, end of story. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I'll give you a little bit of scripture so you feel more comfortable. John 17, 20 through 26. (laughs) This is so cool. John 17, 20 through 26. You know that all of the Bible was written for you, hardly any of it was written to you. (laughs) Heresy, heresy. All of the Bible was written for you. Hardly any of it was written to you. But this passage was written to you. John 17, 20 through 26. Jesus is praying. I pray not for these alone, but for all who will believe in me through their word. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. Where is Jesus? In the Father. Where's the Father? Oh, snap. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me and the glory you gave me, I have given to them. That they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. And that they may be made perfect in one. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Where was Jesus? In the Father. (laughs) That they may behold my glory that you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and those who have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Listen, religion will allow you to believe that Jesus has stepped into your heart, but doesn't want to talk about how you have stepped into his. You are in Jesus, you are in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God is in you. You are a bilocational being. Your spirit man is fully seated in your physical body in this room, and your spirit man is fully seated in the physical body of Jesus within the Trinity. He is in you, and you are in him, inseparably one. You are not God, but you are one with God. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. 
<laughs> Slide nine. Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. John 17.25-26. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you that these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Second Corinthians 5.21. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. First John 4.17, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we here in this world. Did you know you've already faced your judgment day? Is it, it is appointed to man to live once, to die, and then face the judgment. How many of you have been born again? Oh, so your old man died. So you already died once. So you have already been judged and convicted of righteousness. You can't escape it. You've already died once. You are a new creation and you have been judged righteous, period. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Next slide. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. The love with which you loved me. That sounds awesome, right? Next slide. Until you read this verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That doesn't sound very loving. I'm not sure that I want that kind of love. Like a good father who's really good all the time, except in your worst moment. And then he's out. That sounds rough. And the weird thing is, didn't I just read that Jesus said that he was in the father and the father was in him? So how did the father forsake him? Matthew 27, 45 through 46. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, many of us have been taught that when we read this, that in that moment, Jesus became sin and God had to turn his face away from Jesus because God is so holy, he cannot look upon sin. As if there's like levels of holiness, right? And so like father is super duper mega holy and Jesus was like a little less holy just so he could stand us. I'm just saying. (laughs) Remember that theology denies the deity of Jesus because Jesus came not like God. Jesus came as God and he intentionally hung out with sinners all the time because we all know sinners are more fun than religious people. Oh my goodness. And secondarily, that theology makes sin more powerful than God. God cannot look upon sin, so we had to. No, no, no. Sin doesn't make God do anything. (laughs) I thought sin makes God really angry. Actually, Scripture says that the law brings wrath. But where sin abounds, oh, grace much more abounds. 
So actually, God is not repelled by your sin. God is attracted to your sin because he knows he's the only solution to it. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I've had some say, well, Jesus had to experience being forsaken by the Father so that we could be reconnected to him. And we're... Point, I say, well, where was God ever disconnected from man? Because man is removed from the garden, the place of dominion. Sin will cause you to walk outside of your inheritance. Sin will cause you to walk outside of dominion. So he was removed from his place of inheritance and dominion, and then God steps out with them. And all the Bible is God walking with sinners. So how does sin separate you from God? We don't even have time to get into scriptures like nothing exists outside of Christ, (laughs) that in him all things consist, that Paul says to a bunch of idol-worshiping pagans, in him you live and move and breathe and have your being before they were born again. Sin doesn't separate you from God. That's the lie that religion teaches you. It's like when my daughter was like uh, two and I was teaching her how to play hide and seek and she's sitting on the couch and I start to count and she just goes. (laughs) And she thinks because she can't see me that I can't see her. And I'm like, I can still see you, baby. That's not how this works. You actually have to go find a hiding place. I'm still looking right at you. (laughs) Sin hides his face from you. It doesn't hide his face, your face from him. He's still just looking at you, (laughs) waiting for you to uh, shake it off and uh, (laughs) reconnect with him. Oh, my goodness. All right, let's go to slide 13. It'll have the same graphic. Uh, So what's going on here? Did Did the father forsake his perfect beloved son in his dark and most painful hour? Which one of you would forsake your child in their most painful, agonizing moment? Nobody. And yet religion will tell you that God had to do that. So are we better fathers than father? Well, he had to be a bad father so that you could be... (laughs) What are we talking about? That's insanity. This would make God a terrible and cruel father. This is not even bringing into account the horrific heresy at the root of this theology, implying that the Trinity can be separated. That's not possible. The Trinity has always co-eternally coexisted consubstantially. In other words, not one of them ever preceded the other, that you can never see one without the other two being fully present whether you perceive them or not, and consubstantially that they are of the same exact nature. Jesus came to correct the record If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. No man at any time has seen the Father, but if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus came to remind fallen man of what Father was actually like. He's never been an angry punisher God. I know that opens a bunch of questions, and we will not get to those today. Uh, Slide 14. (laughs) So as I began to study this out, I found a cultural rabbinic phenomenon that changes everything. There are four levels of rabbinic interpretation in this specific line of study. Be the acronym PRDS, Paradise, the act of discovery and tilling. 
And the first would be when the rabbis would, in this specific sect, would read the scripture, they would start with the pashat, which is the literal, that the text just says what it says. The second part would be remez, which means to hint, and we'll get there in a moment. The third would be the drash, the creative teaching of the scripture, and Jesus was a master of that. That's why so many people followed him. He, would, he was so creative. Oh, look at the birds. Boom, heavy revy. Look at the flowers. Boom, heavy revy. Jesus' drash was on point. And then sowed, which was when you would catch a revelation from a scripture that could, you could only have caught from divine influence, from Holy Spirit, or in their mind, in God revealing a truth of a scripture to them. And this is what we see in Matthew 16, 16, when Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, whoa. (laughs) Jesus is like, whoa, Peter, surely God revealed that to you. He's saying, Peter, you just had a sowed moment. You caught a revelation that was divinely inspired. But Ramez is where we want to focus today. Ramez, the hint at a deeper thing. And so these rabbis, they would engage in an intellectual sparring contest. It was like a sport. If they had had jerseys, you would buy your favorite rabbi's jersey. (laughs) And you would go to the game. Or really kind of like a rap battle. It was an entertaining competition where they would test to see who had a better grasp of the scriptures. Slide 15. The art of the hint. In the act of Rebez, Rabbi A would quote a scripture in the form of a question. Rabbi B would then quote a scripture that is found in close proximity to the scripture that Rabbi A quoted or that references the same subject matter. And as Rabbi B answered Rabbi A in that format, his verse also simultaneously served as a new question. Then Rabbi A would quote a scripture that was found in close proximity to or referenced to the same subject matter that simultaneously served as a new question. And they would go back and forth. But when a rabbi tired of the game or if he felt the answer that his opponent had given him was not worth even messing with, he would simply quote the first verse of the book that contained the last scripture that was used as a hint. As a way of saying the game's over. You're not on my level. I like to picture it as a rap battle, right? The crowd's ooing and aahing, right? And then there's a drop the mic moment. So what might this look like? Let's say that Rabbi A, he would quote Numbers 17.8. Of course, they didn't have chapter and verse. That's for our sake. But he would say, Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witnesses, and behold, the staff of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. And the whole crowd would look to Rabbi B to see what their response would be. Rabbi A has simply stated the first move in the game. Rabbi B might respond with 1 Kings 3.15. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. And the crowd would say, ah... Because the first rabbi quoted a scripture about a staff, and the second rabbi responded with a scripture about an ark. And there's a connection between the staff and the ark. Because the ark became the final resting place for the staff. And that verse had said, when Solomon awoke. Oh, so from a place of rest, 
he references the final resting place of the staff, the first move in the mastermind game. The ark is the staff's final resting place, to which Rabbi A might respond with 1 Kings 3.5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask, what shall I give you? And the crowd went, oh, because Rabbi A referenced Solomon, same character, sleeping, but he's also referencing the dream through which Solomon gained the wisdom to build the temple, which became the final resting place of the ark, which was the final resting place of the staff. (laughs) To which Rabbi B might respond with 1 Kings 10.9, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted you, setting you on the throne of Israel because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And the crowd, oh, because now we're referencing how the queen of Sheba came to Solomon. Because what? Because she had to see the temple. And yet also she's referencing the throne and the throne is the final resting place of Solomon who built the temple, which is the final resting place of the ark, which is the final resting place of the staff. And is actually the final throne of Jesus. Because in the Davidic covenant, Father says, and your seed will sit on the throne of David forever. Oh my goodness. And at this point, Rabbi A is in trouble. And he might throw out Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared of old to me, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Because in that last verse, it did talk about how God loved Israel forever. But at this point, that's not even a good move. It's an amateur rookie move. And so Rabbi B is having none of it. And the whole crowd's disappointed. Ah, Rabbi A dropped the ball. And so that verse was Jeremiah 31.3. And so Rabbi B knows he's already won that it's finished, that the game is over. So he simply quotes the first verse of Jeremiah. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, the priests who were in Anath in the land of Benjamin, letting him know, I know where you pulled that verse from, but it's not even worth my time. The game is over. The art of Ramez. Quoting scriptures that actually serve as questions that are hinting to a deeper meaning. Are you with me? Next slide. How many of you have ever noticed that Jesus would answer questions with questions all the time throughout scripture? How many of you does he do that to? And it's super frustrating. (laughs) He would would answer questions with questions. I was like, he could have run for office. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Luke 2, 46 through 47. This is where Mary and Joseph lose baby Jesus. Okay. Child Jesus, but baby Jesus is funnier, okay? (laughs) Mary and Joseph have one job, don't lose baby Jesus, they lose baby Jesus. (laughs) Now it was after three days, they find him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions, but all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his... Oh, but I thought I just said he was asking them... Oh, because his questions were his answers, because he was remezzing them... And schooling them. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So at 12, Jesus is punking out all of the top rabbis 
because he's a master of Hermes. And they hate him for it. Slide 17. Matthew 27, 43 through 45, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And who? The rabbis, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, they gather at the foot of the cross. And what do they do? But quote a scripture. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon. Note that verse 45, you have... Rabbis, chief priests, teachers of the law, quoting a scripture to Jesus, and then the next spoken word, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out loud, in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to give it a little more context. I'm going to start in verse 38. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults with him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Slide 18. Psalm 22. Let's actually start with verse 8. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The last spoken words before Jesus speaks, oh, verse 1 from the same psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Watch this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises, and you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. And you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, hurling insults, shaking their hands, their heads. That got weird. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Next slide. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. All this occurs in crucifixion, right? My heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shard. Therefore, Jesus said, I thirst. It sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Next slide. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he, the Father, has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. 
Next slide. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. <laughs> May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation will bow down before him. For the dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness declaring to the people yet unborn that he has done it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. You see, religion has tried to teach us that holy, super-duper, mega, holy father could not look upon sin, and so he forsook the son on the cross. No, no, no. He has not despised the suffering of the afflicted one, nor has he hidden his face from him. In fact, it would be impossible for him to do so because Jesus was in the Father and the Father was in Jesus. He was not standing outside of the cross, pointing a wrathful finger, pouring punishment and wrath upon the Son, lightning bolt. That's a God, but his name is Zeus, not Father. Last slide. We must replace the common crucifix that you see around of the beaten, broken, forsaken son with the truth. I love this crucifix. It's the Trinitarian crucifix. And it shows the father holding the son in the son's worst moment. The power of the Holy Spirit presence. Because the Trinity is three persons in one being, co-eternal, co-existent, and consubstantial. You can't separate them. Separating them is actually heresy. <laughs> Father doesn't do forsaking. 2 Corinthians 5.19 For he, Father, was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The Father was in Jesus, reconciling the world to himself. Not him being reconciled to the world. See, Jesus didn't go to the cross to change Father's mind about you. Jesus went to the cross to change your mind about the Father. The cross is not a picture of what God does. Ah, all this sin is making me super mad. I got to pour my wrath and punishment out somewhere. I'm going to get these sinners. And Jesus is like, no, daddy. Now the Father's like, well, I guess I have to love him now. Smear some of your blood on them so I can stand them. Ah, they're so totally depraved. That's a bunch of religious garbage. For God so loved the world that he gave the son, not as a child sacrifice to himself so his wrath could be appeased. The father gave the son in the way that a father gives a son in marriage in order to gain a daughter he always wanted. You, my friends, are the bride of Christ. The Father gave the Son to gain you as the daughter he has always desired. And the only reason Jesus is the one that came out of the Trinity is that he's the Word, the Logos, where we get the word logic. He's the way God thinks. And man had fallen where? In his mind. Therefore, the person of the Trinity who is the mind of God 
had to come to represent the Father so that we could repent, metanaeo, change the way we think, and be given the mind of Christ. Father is the way God feels, the heart of God, for God so loved the world. Jesus is the way God thinks, Holy Spirit is the way God moves. And you, my friends, have been ushered into an eternal living relationship with the Trinity. You are one with him. Why is it so important for us to to, to catch this? Because the way I was introduced to God was through the bad news. Because Jesus said, go out into all the world and share the bad news as quickly as possible. So I'm an 11-year-old boy. An 11-year-old friend comes up to me and begins the conversation. Bless his heart. The way he was trained. Have you ever heard about hell? I was like, no. What's that? He tells me about hell. I'm like, oh, crap. I didn't know any of this was going on. And this sounds terrible. And he's like, but if you ask Jesus to be your savior, then you go to heaven. I was like, well, what's heaven? And he pointed up in the sky and he said, well, it's up there. And you like sit on a cloud and sing to God all day. I was like, all day? He said, all day. I said, for how long? He said, forever. I said, forever? I was like, that doesn't sound much better in hell, but I guess it's a little better in hell. I guess I choose heaven. But see, that model of evangelism, if you want to call it that, introduces you to an angry God who's mad about your sin, who murdered his son so he could stand you. And that's not the gospel. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I believe that 90% of the problems in the world could be solved if we had men who knew how to be fathers in the families, in the homes. But when the church, whose job, as it states in Ephesians, is to display the manifold wisdom of God, presents a model to the world of an angry, absent, abusive father. No wonder the world produces angry, absent, abusive fathers. If I see one more traditional crucifix, I'm going to puke on my shoes. A broken, beaten, forsaken son. But, but he's a good father, I promise. He had to do that to the perfect, beloved son so that you would be okay. What? <laughs> That's crazy. No, no, no. For he, father, was in Christ, reconciling the world back to himself. The Trinity co-endured the crucifixion. Not a picture of what God does, does a picture of who God is. And you, my friends, have been invited into the family. Orphans becoming sons. Seek first the kingdom. The kingdom is the extension of his heart and authority from the unseen realm into the seen realm through you. It's where you belong. And his righteousness, right standing within God. And that has been given to you. The kingdom is where you belong. His righteousness is why you belong. Last slide. I'm going to keep this short. <laughs> Probably over time already. I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. Um, I'll talk more about this tonight. So if you're interested, uh, come tonight. Well, I'll have a little more time to lay some of this out. When Dano asked me to start the school, or encouraged me to start a school, to equip prophetic kingdom reformers to be able to show up as the goodness of God in culture so that humanity might have an opportunity to experience his goodness... I quickly discovered that if I handed the keys of how to work with influencers and infiltrate 
Secular systems, not in a military maneuver, but in the way that an antibiotic infiltrates a sick body to bring it back to health. But if I equipped people that had been handed religious mindsets, then it was not going to work. <laughs> and so for the first three quarters of the first year, we go through theology. I call it detoxing religion. And we identify all of the stuff like what I've been talking today, we pull it out and we align with the truth of the Trinity, the truth of God, the truth of the Father, the truth of Jesus, the truth of Holy Spirit. And we align ourselves with the heart of God and we reform our minds so that we're walking with the mind of Christ. And then I begin to equip you with how to show up as a kingdom reformer in order to change the world, to move influentially in whatever sphere of influence you've been called to in order to present the goodness of God. Christ in you is the hope of glory. When Moses says, God, show me your glory, God says, okay. And then he put him in a cleft of a rock and a glory cloud passed by. Oh, no. And then angel feathers. No. And then a weighty presence. No. God caused his goodness. So the moment that God is asked to define his glory, God defines his glory as his goodness. Listen, I like glory clouds and angel feathers and the weighty presence and the oil dripping out of people's hands. I've seen all that. It's cool. Gold dust, right? I love all that. But when God was asked to define his glory, he said, yes, it's my goodness. Christ in you is the hope of someone experiencing the goodness of God. You do not need the hope of glory. That's not for you because you are the hosts of glory. Christ in you is the world's hope of experiencing the goodness of God. And it's the goodness of God that causes or leads men to repentance. Metanio, the changing the way that they think. So we exist to uh, equip people, help them detox religion, develop kingship, be deployed into assignment in order to design culture. Because we're going to actually disciple nations. And it's going to be amazing. So... SOKSA.co.za. This does take place 7 p.m. your time, so it's awesome. Check it out. Thanks for having me so much. We'll be back tonight. Can't wait. Um, I'm not supposed to close the service. You're supposed to do it. That's <laughs> okay. Dub, can we just do one thing this morning? I just want us to stretch our hands out to Dub. And his team, but um, you guys can also stretch your hands out, sorry. <laughs> so, Father, we thank you. Lord God, this is um, your son. And Lord, what assignment you've given him, Father, we just recognize this morning the gift, but also, Father, the anointing for that gift. And so we pray, Father, that you open up doors in every nation. Father, let what you have placed inside of Dub, let it spread to every nation. And continent in this world, Lord, because I know that is your assignment for him. And so we thank you for favor, goodness, and mercy. We'll follow you everywhere you go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. That was fun, man. Thank you, brother.